Welcome to episode 64 of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. Our guest today is Dr. Judith Van Horn, a grandmother, educator, and expert on children's play. In addition to numerous college textbooks about play, she has written a book for grandparents. The title is The Gift of Play, How Grandparents Enhance the Lives of Young Children. Before I launch into our conversation, I want to remind you the next book giveaway will be April the 7th when a lucky Adventures with Grammy newsletter subscriber will receive an autographed copy of Grad to Grown Up by Jean Rice. If you're not a subscriber, signing up for the newsletter is easy. Start by texting the word Grammy to 22828 to get started or visit my website adventureswithgrammy.com and click the newsletter sign up button. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Judy Van Horn. I love the fact that you've written this book about play. I have talked with so many grandparents who say they really don't know how to play with their grandchildren and I think you have certainly given them a roadmap for how to do that. But before we start talking about play and discussing your book, will you please give the listeners an introduction to who you are and why you wrote this book? When I think about who I am and uh, why I wrote the book, I think a lot about my own grandmother, who was very quiet, but playful in a very calm kind of way. And my own mother, who was playful in a loving to make things and do things, and my father who loved to sing. So we were, I don't know if we were a playful family to people on the outside, but I just loved playing as a kid. And I realized that as I became a teacher, so in terms of my background, I'm trained as a scientist, an educator, a psychologist. So Part of it is just thinking about playing around in different fields. And I was fortunate enough when I went back and got my master's and doctorate to work with someone who was an expert on children's play and wrote widely on children's play. And I never had thought of that as a really an academic field. I always thought about it as, oh, that's what I love to do with young kids and my own kids. So I worked with some of my the colleagues that I met in school. And we wrote a number of textbooks, in fact, textbooks over a period of 30 years called Play at the Center of the Curriculum. And after we finished writing those textbooks and I retired, I thought all of those things would be a great topic for a book for, for grandparents. And I spent four or five years just watching other grandparents and watching kids and talking to people. And so the book came out of all those conversations. So I'm a grandparent. My husband and I have four grandchildren, and they range in age from four to 21. We have a nice range. That is. And I heard that you also have a nice range with uh, of your grandchildren. Yes, but the range is a lot smaller than yours. Mine go from ages two to nine. I'm curious, I'm pretty set on how I am a grandmother to these little kids, but I think about my own children when they became teenagers and how the landscape changes. And so I then can only imagine how it is when 
their college students or their graduates and they're in their careers. That's a wide range of grandparenting skills to acquire and to master. Some of the principles are exactly the same. The habits that you get into of just figuring out what is interesting to the child, following a child's interest from when they're born. And if you're fortunate enough to be with a baby in those very early weeks or months or even years, to when they're in their adolescence and in early adulthood and beyond. So just as we do with our friends and everyone we love, that we want to have a very wonderful, loving relationship. And that's, I think, the foundation for all of it is to find out, you know, follow people's children's interests. And then as they get older, they learn to follow your interests too. And I think if you have established a good relationship with the children when they're young, that that will follow through into their adulthood. Yes. In fact, interestingly, my grandson is a junior in college and is about 500 miles from where we are. So we talk to him and FaceTime with him, et cetera. But he just last semester, he wrote a a paper and interviewed his friends and other kids on college students' relationships are with their grandparents. And it was just a lovely affirmation that he's interested in thinking about getting older, changes but doesn't change a relationship with a grandparent. I wish that to everyone listening to think about the the long term too. That's good advice. All of us want to establish loving relationships with our grandchildren. In fact, that's the basically the second chapter of this book was just interviewing people uh, on what they did to enhance their loving relationships with their grandchildren. And that was so much fun. What exactly is the definition of play? That's a great question because... People who study play are still trying to figure out how can you have a definition that would be a global definition and it cover all people of all ages everywhere. There really is not one definition, but there are a couple of characteristics. And some of the characteristics of play is that you're doing it because you want to do it. It's not something that someone is making you do. You can stop when you want to stop. So that's a very important thing to think of with little kids that if they want to stop, that's when they want to stop. And that it's something you and they find is when you think about grandparent and grandchild play, one of the things that's different about most play is that our ages are so different because some of the definitions say, oh, it's something you do with someone about your age. And we know that that's definitely not true. So I think that just thinking about play as something that is very mutual, you're doing something that you're both enjoying at the moment, and that as a grandparent, sometimes you continue because it makes you happy to read that book for the sixth time, or to play a game that you might think, oh, I'm not sure about the shoots and ladders game right now. I have other things to do, but you just take the time because it's so, you just get that wonderful feeling when you're with a child who is so happy to be doing something with you. You talk about reading uh, a book for like the 10th time. I always love it when my, my grandkids, especially when they were 
the younger ones, like two, three years old, it's like, read another book, read another book. And sometimes you've read the same book so many times that they join in because they've memorized the book because they've heard it so many times. Unless people have, you know, had early childhood education experience, don't realize that that's what leads into later literacy. You know, children just enjoying a book and sometimes being able to you say, well, what's going to come next? And they know just, okay, I bet this is going to happen. So they start anticipating all of those things, make them good storytellers, good conversationalists, but also good readers. So we, all of those things that we do without, sometimes without thinking about are the things that uh, will help a child academically but when we start being too academic, and this is something that I, I say quite a lot, when we start getting into that teacher mode, which I can do as a former <laughs> teacher, my kids say, stop, you know, sounding like a teacher. We're having, you know, this is a game. We're having fun. Or so we can, uh, we can back off and just be the grandparent who has the the fun, and sometimes the fun we didn't have time to have with our children when during those busy years when they were growing up. It's funny you say about, you know, get rid of the teacher voice. This is what I call stealth learning is when you're playing and you're out having adventures and the kids are learning without it being academic. I just mm -hmm. absolutely love those times because you can weave in lessons without the teacher voice and the kids are learning without realizing they're learning. And when you can combine academics and play and good times together, I mean, it's like, that's the trifecta of grandparent love to me. Absolutely. And that they're, they're just also learning how to be a caring relative when they're with you and you're walking around and you're looking at the leaves falling or right now the perhaps some uh, some leaves fall forming on the trees or some blossoms and you look and or you're looking at a, a a worm on the sidewalk anything that you're interested in is just really modeling your curiosity you're being creative and your interest in the world. And that's, I think, what we, we want children to be able to enjoy, enjoy moments and their whole lives, being curious, um, wanting to know more, being imaginative, and um, just being aware of what's happening around them. And it's interesting at that play changes as the children get older. So in my, my one son has four children and they're the ones with the great age span. The children are two, five, seven, and nine. And so mm -hmm. the boys, the seven and the nine-year-old, they like to play board games or play cards mm -hmm. like uh, war, for instance. Well, then the two-year-old mm -hmm. wants to come over and just throw all the cards in the floor. So <laughs> I have to balance all of their needs and it gets tricky sometimes, but it's really been fun for me to watch as the children mature, how their tastes have changed and how they want to interact with me differently. For instance, 
the older boys, the older ones, they don't necessarily want me to read stories to them when they go to bed at night. They want me to tell them stories where the girls Ah. still want me to read them stories. The older children are at an age where it's fun for them to imagine stories. So they really want to know your stories and sometimes hear about when you were little or when when their dad was little. Um, They can probably read and amuse themselves and they want to be independent. So it's, it's really adjusting to all of those ages, all of those differences. And you brought up something that very few grandparent books and conversations often talk about, which is what do you do when you have four children of different ages and one wants to mouth the book, the other wants a book <laughs> read to them. And the other ones don't, you know, can read and they don't need to hear that book again. So that's, you know, that's like, you know, serving that uh, Thanksgiving dinner with so many different courses at the same time that you're just attending to everybody. And uh, that's a, you know, then they see how you do that. Not easily sometimes. (laughs) So right. Just recently, I was caring for the four of them. And so the boys and I were playing uh, war with the cards. And then the Mm -hmm. five-year-old was having a tea party. So I tried to interest. So my my attention is split between the two groups. And then there's the two-year-old who wants to come over and, you know, mess up all the cards. So I started by letting her hold my extra cards for a while. And then Mm -hmm. she put those down and went over to have tea with her sister. And so the two-year-old really made that play situation challenging. So at one point the boys were just really frustrated with her, but then, you know, they all, we all started laughing because she was she's so cute. It's hard not to laugh at her. We learned to anticipate when she was coming. And so we would grab the cards or we would give her the jokers to hold and the box. Mm-hmm. And she was happy oh, with that. <laughs> so beautiful. yes, yes, that that is yes, a challenge. It's uh, we got to the point where we played games when she was taking a nap and that seemed to solve the problem. Yes, it's hard to. um have a two-year-old think about turn-taking, where the older ones <laughs> do turn-take. But then they're learning how to be really, you know, wonderful older brothers and sisters to the little one. Often we're thinking about what is the game, but then the under, not the undercurrent, but the thing that children are really learning is like, what is being part of a group like? What is being part of this family like? So lots of different things are going on just as you were doing that. You could probably write down 20 different things that were were happening for everybody, including yourself. What was the easiest for me to manage was when we were all outside, because then there are activities appropriate for each age group. And Mm -hmm. I just had to interact with them one-on-one and get one interested and then they were off riding the bike and then the other was on her little push card and so the outside play really was better for the age differences than the inside play you just brought up something that i think we should just keep underlining and putting into practice which is the importance of outdoor play because often if especially if we're people who 
a grandparentist person who is inside a lot with all the things that we do inside, that for children, especially outdoor play and being outside is just so important. And right now we learn that schools are tending to cut back recess times and times for kids to just be creative and be outdoors. And one of the things about being outdoors for children is that they have more choices. There are more things that they can do. And children often have a sense of more, perhaps the word isn't power, but that they're more in charge. They have more agency outside, where inside they may have to be careful about doing this, or there are more rules, but outside more things are possible and more creativity is possible. And they can go from, you know, the grand scheme of things, which, you know, looking at birds far away or a plane going by or trees, some of the big sky things to little tiny things like, you know, looking at um, an insect or looking at a, a tiny spot on the, my grandson often is just like, what is that spot on the sidewalk? Where did it come from? wonderful to spend outdoor time. We're just lucky that that there are opportunities and places to go outside. My son has developed this incredible backyard for these kids. The boys have a ninja course where Mm -hmm. they can climb and hang on bars. And the five-year-old is becoming an incredible gymnast. So she likes to do that too. The the two-year-old is also very strong, has a lot of upper body strength. So she likes hanging on things too. But what she mostly does is run from wanting me to push her on the swing to then wanting to slide Mm -hmm. down the sliding board. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so nice. And you were talking about the kid empowering the children outside, the children pick whatever activity they want. And it does give them the power of choice because there are things out there that they, they like to do. I have to be a little more concerned about the two-year-old on the ninja course Mm -hmm. than I do the nine-year-old, but it's still choice. I just have to supervise the two-year-old a little more. Growing up in New York City to being out here in California where there's lots of open space near me to being in the Peace Corps in Korea, where things were very different. And I, so in terms of outdoor spaces, when we lived in New York and I taught in New York, we would actually look at things like, you know, have a tree and how does it change throughout the year? Or we had asphalt um, playgrounds, which we had to be careful of, but there's such a range and wherever anybody is, I think that uh, being outside is is so important. And when I've been in the parks, I spent a lot of time in parks with my grandchildren. I find that the grandparents often are, you know, they're not hovering, but they're there and they're engaged and the children are engaged. And one difference that I see is that from my point of view, too often parents can be on the phone all the time when they're outdoors with the kids. And we grandparents tend not to do that as much or at all. You know, you mentioned about the trees and how the trees change. One of the things that I've enjoyed doing with the kids is taking pictures, the same spot, 
different times of the year to show what it looks like in winter, what it looks like in summer, spring, fall, whatever. And I think that helps. There's that stealth learning with science is that rather than just Mm -hmm. say, oh, we're going to have a science lesson, just the observation of the seasons. And like, Mm -hmm. I like to celebrate the winter solstice and the summer solstice and helping Mm -hmm. kids understand what that means. And and how the length of your shadow changes with the days and the times yes. of the year. Yes. And to and, me, that's uh, all part of play outside. Absolutely. And the taking pictures at different times and having them or even making them into little homemade books so that children can have the fun of making the book and then going through the book or talking about the book or do you remember when? And then... Um, so many things. We're so fortunate now with uh, with being able to take pictures and have children think about, oh, do I remember that? Um, out here in California with the drought, my four-year-old grandson, I think when he, he was last year, when he was three and it started to rain, he said, what's that? And we realized that, you know, we'd never taken pictures of the rain or talked about it, but he, so little rain that he didn't remember rain. So just having pictures and thinking about what this is and what came first and second and third. Some people take pictures of, you know, if they're cooking, how the different steps there or the children taking pictures. So people sometimes don't think of that as play, but all of that, when you're engaged and having fun, that's. That is play. My five-year-old granddaughter especially likes to cook and her parents are really good about taking pictures. So we have lots of photos of her, even when she was two, three years old, helping her dad cook. And so the two-year-old is starting to do that too. And the other thing is when my son exercises, he, Mm -hmm. the girls want to exercise with him. So when the the two-year-old was an infant, like a week old. There's my son with her in a pouch, you know, doing some of his exercises. And now when he does push-ups, the girls sit mm-hmm. on his back and just roll oh, and giggle yes. <laughs> because as he's going up and down, they sometimes fall off, you know, mm-hmm. and it's play, it's time spent and it's quality time because not only is he interacting with the girls, but he's showing them the example of the importance of exercise. You're also pointing out, I think, how different families have different customs and do different things, and that there's no right or wrong about what you enjoy doing, and that everything has a richness when there's that playful quality. But when you were talking about cooking just now, there's a uh, chapter on play, problem solving, and mathematics. And the pictures there are of another friend with her grandson's cooking. And nobody says, well, we're going to teach you about uh, ratios and proportions and measurement. But all of that is happening right there. And they're just having fun cooking and it's woven in. So the example of, let's say, making um, oatmeal cookies and putting kids, putting different ingredients in and choosing the ingredients and then mixing and stirring and then seeing what happens. All of that is problem solving, mathematics, uh, science, 
And of course, art, as you have, child puts in the raisins in different places and makes a design. Something goes from something they can stir to something that is cooked that they can eat and share. So the you know social emotional growth, there's just endless possibilities with the simplest, simplest activity. One of the benefits of cooking is that not only is it time with your child or grandchild, but they're learning fractions. They're learning how to measure. And I always taught my kids that when they're measuring liquid, they have to have the measuring cup at eye level and that the bottom of that little arc is where it was one cup, you know, not the top of it. And it's just little things that you don't necessarily think of as teaching them or academics for the sake of teaching them, but just how to be a better cook. And these are part of it. And when you're playing and you're doing it, it doesn't matter if the chocolate chip cookies come out a little wonky looking, they still taste good and you had fun making them. Right. And then the child probably at about, oh, three or four is doing pretend play, maybe in the living room or outside in a, a park in the sand and makes you some cookies. And you can see how they've been thinking about it. And when you talked about proportions, it occurred to me that in terms of language and play, sometimes people are a little, they ask questions. Um, I've had parents and grandparents talk about, well, what level of language should I use? And I always say, just use the language that you use. You might want to explain something, but If a child can say Tyrannosaurus rex or Stegosaurus, they can definitely say proportions, even though they may not know just what a proportion means, but they will in the future. So just giving them that, you know, the foundations and that connections of, oh, math is really interesting. We can solve problems. Why did that cookie turn out so runny? Why did it turn out so lumpy? We can problem solve, whether we're in the sandbox or in the kitchen. When I was last visiting with my family, my granddaughter wanted me to play in her kitchen. She has this little play kitchen with saucepans and plates and foods. And she had made a plate of food for me. And whereas she has some pretend peas and carrots and different things, she had picked up different kinds of toys like her brothers have nerf guns and she had picked Mm -hmm. up the bullets that have like they were orange with like a blue tip on them and she told me those were carrots and the plate Mm -hmm. of food that she handed me had a variety of items on it and it was so colorful I I mentioned to her that it was colorful and she came back to me and said it's nutritious And at the time she was four years old, she hadn't quite turned five yet. And I was just taken aback by her one, knowing the word nutritious and second, realizing that a colorful plate was more nutritious than just a bland color plate. And I thought that has come from cooking. It's come from just meal preparation and eating a healthy diet. I was really impressed with her. That is very impressive. And one goal I had in writing the book was to um, share how when we know more about play, we see more in play. So as you're, for example, as you were 
just uh, giving that example, I thought, oh, it, with a two-year-old, probably the food would have to look more like the food. And as children get older and are able to symbolize and understand that something stands for something else, she had different things like the Nerf, what did you say? The, the it was Nerf a Nerf ball, bullet. Nerf. Yeah, it was like a, a foam oh, rubber cylinder kind of thing. Right. And but that represented a carrot. Right. So it looked a little bit like a carrot, but if she was two, she may have needed something that actually was a looked like a carrot. And then at four or five, she has something that suggests a carrot. And then at six or seven, she can see the word carrot and it represents carrot. So you have the, the whole, you know, the whole um, continuum of children learning to use symbols. But that's not something that we always think about when we are playing with uh, in pretend play. I, in fact, I once asked, again, my four-year-old grandson last year, what does it mean to pretend? And he said, it means when you pretend it is, but it isn't. And I thought, oh, that's about as good a, a uh, definition of pretend that I have read. So <laughs> it's true. Kids sort of understand what's going on. I had not connected the fact that she was going from concrete representation to abstract thought. That's really cool. Yes, it's, you can sort of see, see the whole process. And it's a different age for different children. So when people, when grandparents have asked me, well, how do you play with a, a child who has some delays or seems very advanced in something? And then it's just a matter of being where they are and you know, responding to what they're interested in rather than saying, oh, well, if my child is diagnosed at being at age three, but is really at more like six, that's not relevant when you're playing because you just focus on what the child does, what the child enjoys and, and what you both enjoy. So true. I want to go back to my two-year-old granddaughter. Since she nice. was a baby, I used to play peekaboo with her. I was told when my oldest child was a baby that playing peekaboo was important because it was psychologically empowering for the child to know that mommy could disappear, but she would come back. I have always remembered that my son is 47 years old now. And mm -hmm. so that peekaboo is always something that I've played with the kids. By the time she was about a year old, when she would first see me, she would immediately put her hands over her eyes and then throw mm -hmm. them aside and giggle. And I always mm -hmm. thought that was her way of playing peekaboo and asking me to play peekaboo with her. So I would sit her on my lap and we would play peekaboo. It just made me feel good that she recognized not only me, but she recognized something that the both of us enjoyed doing together. Enjoyed doing, yes. And that she was cueing you to the game. My research for my doctorate was on the games that people in different cultures play with their babies. And I went into homes and watched families together playing with their children. So I think I was one of the few people who had people calling me saying, can I be a participant in your research rather than uh, trying to give people rewards for, 
being, because they weren't research subjects, they were research participants. Absolutely. Um, it was wonderful to, to hear people talking about their feelings about the games they played when they were children or their cousins seeing their family play and then playing it because the games are so similar around the world. They're peekaboo games around the world. They're clapping games around the world. They're rocking games around the world. Games where you, you know, lift a child up into the air and twirl them around or bounce children on your knee. And most of it is that people have learned that that's what kids of different ages like to do. And that's, they're training us to be good parents and grandparents. What is so interesting about your statement is that we are so alike, regardless of where we live on this earth, or what language we speak, we still have the same basic needs and fun together. You know, so grandparents mm -hmm. doesn't matter if they're living in India or Brazil or Guatemala, they still enjoy playing with their grandkids and smiling and eye contact and giggles just make your heart melt. Yes. And in fact, many of the parents that I spoke to at that time, they were parents from the groups included parents from uh, Mexico and China and different countries the parents would say that they called their parents, let's say that they called their mother or called their father. What was that game about Ricky Ran? Or what was that game about Pachi uh, Pachi Kehala? So that people, it's a tradition of how we pass on the fun that fam we have as families from one generation to the next. And it's, you know, it would be interesting to think about your parents, grandparents going back generations, and they may have had the same kind of game and perhaps held a child in the same kind of way that you do, but we're often not aware of that. I can remember my grandmother rocking me in a rocking chair. And mm -hmm. I, I just have always had rocking chairs in my house. Because one, I like to rock. Now, whether that came from being in my grandmother's arms, I don't know. But I just feel it's so important to have rocking chairs because it helps when my daughter uh, was sick quite a bit as a child. And it seemed like she would wake up at one o'clock in the morning with a fever and I couldn't uh -huh. you know, get to a doctor for several hours. But one of the things that seemed to soothe her is if I would swaddle her and rock her. And I think being close to me and the, you know, just the, the warmth of my body against hers and that rocky motion would quiet her. And so I've always felt rocking chairs were so important. And that's something that I've always enjoyed doing with my own kids. And so I have a tendency when they're little and even when they're a little bit older, but especially when they're little, it's mm -hmm. just to sit there and rock with them. Rock. And I uh, you know, wonder how, how your rocking just associates with your being on your grandmother's lap and feeling the rocking and then yes. now having a child cuddling up with you and rocking, you know, that's the kind of thing we want to pass on, I think, to our, our children, grandchildren, great grandchildren in terms of loving relationships. What are the things that uh, 
that are both part of our inheritance and that we want to pass on to them. For me, one of the main things, as you can tell, is, uh, is play. Even though you're there with the ill child in the middle of the night, you're do something, doing something that passes on that, that loving feeling, that caring feeling. And it's, you know, one would say it has aspects of play, even though it's really about, you know, caring and, and loving, which I, that's, I guess, the, the subtitle of the book, How Grandparents Enhance the Lives of Young Children. It's all those different ways. Absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing that up, example, because sometimes things are difficult. We think, oh, you know, when people think of grandparents in play, they think of just the, the light side, but sometimes there are more serious sides to it as well. The grandmother who used to rock me a lot, her husband, maternal grandfather, is the one who is the storyteller of the family. And mm-hmm. I remember my play with him was he was a farmer. And so he would come in and clean up and it was time for the noon meal. And then he would always rest, especially in the summer and the hot of the summer days, Mm -hmm. he would rest in the afternoon and then go back out and tend to the cows and the animals and, you know, finish up what he had to do. But that afternoon time was my time with him. And we would cuddle on this, this cot of some sort. And he would tell me story after story after story. And it was never the same story twice. And those are the memories that I have of him that, again, with like with my grandchildren wanting me to tell them stories, I would, after I read them like 10 books, (laughs) I was tired and it's like, you've got to go to sleep now. They would say, tell Mm -hmm. me a story with your mouth. And that meant Mm -hmm. don't read me a book, but just tell me a story. And so that started when my oldest, who's nine, was probably three years old. And I would turn that into let's do a story together. I'm going to tell something. I'm going to say something. And then you add to it. And I think that has helped that now when he's nine years old and it's time to go to bed, he doesn't want a book read, but he wants me to tell him a story. And I continue that by saying, what should come next? Or what do you think is going to happen next? Uh That play I had with my grandfather, I did with my children, and now I'm doing it with my grandchildren. And does he know about the story of you and your grandfather? Yes, he does. And one of the things, and, and I know listeners have heard me say this, is I gave my grandchildren for Christmas a book that I wrote for them called My Family Tree. And in that Mm -hmm. book, it's the idea of passing along these family stories. So I have written different stories about their relatives, like my grandparents, and trying to pass along some sort of a legacy of my family down to them. And I, I wrote the story about my grandfather telling me stories and how important that was to me and how important it is to me today. So they are, I am capturing these stories that I'm passing along to the kids. 
when I was talking to grandparents and writing this book, those are the kinds of things that people would tell me about. And sometimes they were written down. And one grandfather, for example, when you talked about a farm, uh, told me about his grandfather having a farm in Central California. And in the summertime when it was hot, well, any time of year, the grandfather, who was not very verbal, was a quiet man. They would hold hands and walk down the rows, you know, looking at the plants, looking carefully. And this fellow became a, uh, in fact, became a scientist and science educator. And when you, when he talks about how he got that interest, he talks about his grandfather's, just as you talk about your grandfather and the stories that he told and how you pass that on. And I think that that's, it's both one thing that we do through play. And another thing I've been thinking more about is how our grandchildren's interests get us interested in all kinds of new things. When they, people talk about how to, you know, um, how grandparents and people as we get older can be more alert. It's becoming, you know, it's having, expanding our interests that we've had and and new interests. So following the interests of our grandchildren also is something that is good for us as well as good for them. As you were talking, and I was thinking about my grandfather, the other thing that he and I did often was go fishing and fishing. Our, our, <laughs> our picture of fishing is not what comes to mind, I think, for most people. And one of the things that I love about my grandfather, or loved about him, was his patience with me. And, it, and it's illustrated so much in the story about fishing. We would go down to the creek, and the creek was probably, as a child, a, a little over ankle deep, and it had a nice river rock bottom to it, and the water was really, really cold. But he would take me fishing and fishing meant he would find a stick or I would find a stick and he would just put a string on it. It didn't even have a hook. And there would be a lot of minnows. The the stream had a lot of minnows in it. And so I would pretend that I was in the stream and I was fishing and I would hold the stick with the string. And of course, no minnows would bite because there was nothing to bite. I could stay there as long as I want. And then I would get tired of the fish not biting. So I would get a pail and I would scoop up a bunch of minnows. Now, my grandfather during this time was resting against a tree. He would sit on the ground and breast his back against this tree and probably more often than not had his eyes closed. But I would run back up and I would show him all of the fish that I caught. And then when I decided that I would dump them back in, or when I decided I'd had enough of, you know, my feet being cold and I wanted to go home, then he would get up and we would go home. But I don't remember one time my grandfather ever telling me we had to hurry up and go home. It was mm-hmm. our play, our time. And I could just walk up and down and the creek as much as I want. I could pick out which location, which usually was the same location. But it was up to me where we went and how long we stayed. And as I have matured as a grandmother, I recognize that my grandfather gave me such a gift. And mm-hmm. I try to emulate that as a grandparent to my grandkids because 
he was probably the most patient person I've ever met in my life. It reminds me too of a um, a grandmother I spoke to and I quote in the book uh, who's who was from the Philippines and her she talked about her parents who she said their expression was how do you spell love T I M E yes <laughs> so it's just spending that time just um, and following the child's interest or just having that relaxing time together. And that came up so often. And there's so many examples of that in the book and all the different uh, topics, whether it's um, you know something about how children develop and how play develops or pretend play or play in language. It's all about spending time together. And when people talked about how they were different as grandparents from how they were as parents, often it's about time, that we we have more time and our time is more flexible. And that's really, um, that could be a whole new book, the, the Gift of Time. I hear that from people all the time, that they have more time as grandparents. And the parents I talk to will say, I wish I had more time, but they're so busy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess every era feels like it's complicated, but it just seems like, whereas technology was supposed to give us more time, to me, it's just sucked it away. So, and, and even when we thought, oh, the pandemic will mean that we have more time, things are just different. It's not necessarily more time. And uh, one thing that, um, that I, I did want to say about play and time and the pandemic also is the whole thing of uh, virtual grandparenting because more grandparents are interacting with their kids virtually. But also when I speak to so many people who are just at a distance from their grandchildren, they're all these And I've tried to highlight them in the book, whether you're just uh, doing virtual long distance grandparenting for the time being, or whether it's just that you live apart, there are ways to have that sense of playfulness and time together to give that time, whether it's on a screen, which is not what you'd prefer, or in person, it's that connection that you want to build. And I am not a proponent of kids having a lot of screen time, but I also believe that there are some advantages in children learning how to use the technology because it does prepare them for jobs and a world that we don't even know will exist by the time these kids are adults. And there are jobs today that didn't even exist when I was a child simply because of technology. But I do think technology needs to be moderated. Now, one of the things, all four of my boys have a Nintendo Switch, and all four of them want me to get one so that I can play these games with them. So you talk about meeting a child where that child is. I have to just say, okay, I'm going to spend the however much money it takes and buy this because I know this is something that the kids really want to engage with me. And the four boys play these games together. So they have this, their little group. 
So I have to decide if that's something that I want to do with them because I haven't bought it yet. Technology is good, but we do have to watch it. The American Academy of Pediatrics, our pediatricians say that you know, ch- uh, children under two should not really have be using technology and then just very little until they're four or so. They're just, um, you know, some advice about technology that's useful to know. But I think for me, the um, one exception, and I think it's an exception that they also talk about is, you know, interacting with family. So we can say it, it's part of being a good consumer and teaching kids how to be, you know, how to be good consumers, how to be informed about what they choose to do with technology, just like what they choose to do with any money that they save or how to make good choices and what the choices mean. So does technology help bring your family together or is everybody on a different screen in a restaurant or is everybody playing a game with a grandparent that lives halfway around the world, you know, every Saturday morning? There are all kinds of choices that we can decide, yeah, this is something that works for our family and something that doesn't. And then, of course, as a grandparent, it's the parent who's making the decision so that you want to be really supportive of a parent and a parent's decision. Absolutely. Brought up a lot. Yes. And I know with both of my boys who have have the, the six grandchildren, their limits on how often they can play and the length of time. And I know my one son actually has a meter on his boys devices where once that meter goes off, that's it. You don't get any more screen time for the day, but giving the kids opportunities to do other things too, you know, having Mm -hmm. books, having art supplies, having, outside activities. It's one of the things about my one son that has this backyard that looks like a playground because there's no excuse for the children not to have something to do outside. If you're bored, go outside. There's plenty of things for you to do, or I can give you a list of chores that you can do. (laughs) Don't tell me you're bored because I can find something for you to do. (laughs) You know, when thinking about where people live, um, often well, moving from New York, for example, moving from New York uh, to California as a teacher in New York, we just dressed the kids up in their boots and snowsuits and they went outside. And then here, when I first came here, I was surprised that often children stayed in if it was rainy, just a little bit rainy. It was very helpful when I had a uh, student teacher who came from Sweden and I You know, everybody was asking her, well, what do you do when it's so snowy, you know, so much of the year? And she said, we just dress for it. That was very helpful to me in terms of thinking that just because I'm cold or I need an umbrella doesn't mean that the kids can't be outside and running about. (laughs) I was still thinking about this two-year-old when she was closer to one. She was outside. It was raining and she was outside and she had on. Uh, Crocs, the little plastic kind of shoes. Mm -hmm. And she was just Uh stomping in the mud puddles and having Mm -hmm. just a wonderful, wonderful time. It just, it did not matter that it was raining. It was warm. So the Mm -hmm. water, I mean, it wasn't January and Mm -hmm. she was just giggling and having the best time. And it's just 
fun to watch kids' reactions to cold and rain often differ 180 degrees from their parents. But I was interviewing somebody for a podcast and they live up north and it was snow on the ground. And she made the comment about her kids going to school and it was snowing outside. I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking to myself, okay, I live in Virginia and at the first forecast of a snowflake, schools close down here because we don't have the snow removal equipment. We don't have enough snow so that people come proficient on driving in the snow. Mm -hmm. So it's just a difference in what you're used to. I know I have a friend who lives in Denmark and it's like, we just put the babies outside and they get used to the Mm -hmm. cold. They're bundled up and it's healthy for them. We have an anemometer here on our farm and it's connected Mm -hmm. digitally. So inside we can see the wind speed and things, humidity, whatever, but we also have a a rain gauge. And so when the kids are here, if we have a lot of rain, they love to go outside and measure how much rain we've had and look at this Mm -hmm. device to see about wind speed and the direction that it's coming from. So it is I never thought of that as play, but it's definitely something that interests the kids when they're here. That's a good sort of summary of everything where, you know, it's play if we enjoy doing it, if we're interested in it, and if no one's saying, well, now you must do this with the rain guard. There are all kinds of play, and uh, what we can do, and I hope I've done that in the book, is just say, so look at all that's happening. Look what happens when the older one goes out, or maybe the middle child goes out as interested in the rain guard. Yeah. And then the younger one sees it and it becomes a playful thing. And then they maybe they want to make their own and put a pail out and see what happens or see how the snow melts or see how, you know, they make ice cubes and then see how the ice cubes melt, that it can be playful. Uh, one of the memorable things that one grandparent shared that I included in the book was that with his grandkids, they go through the car wash because there is not a lot of rain here. So going through (laughs) the car wash and experiencing the car wash. And then he said, they just sing at the top of their lungs when they go through the car wash. So I can just imagine him and his five and six-year-old grandchildren singing as this whole thing is splashing at them. They're just all these opportunities. It's just using the opportunities we have. Can I just tell one more story about another grandfather? I was at the pharmacy waiting online to pick up a prescription. And there was a grandfather and grandchild right in front of me. And they were looking at the Kleenex, the tissues that were lined up on the shelves that they were passing. I started listening to their conversation because they were talking about different designs on the boxes. At one point they talked about, oh, if you had, I think it was like a tiger and a, I know, an elephant or something, then one of them could be the tiger. One of them could be the elephant and the elephant and the tiger could play together or chase each other. That there just were all these different opportunities where you'd never think, standing online, you know, at the store, who would think about all the different playful pretend things that can happen. So 
it's not a question of having a special place to play, but just thinking about play and just weaving it into your day to your delight and definitely the delight of your grandchildren. I think it's a mindset is that if you look at life (laughs) as play, then you take advantage of situations and you turn it into play. And I'll give you an example of, of that in my own life, because it, it brought back something that you said earlier until recently we had horses. And so that was a big thing for the kids when they came up as they liked to ride the horses and they just liked being involved with the horses, including mucking the stalls. I have some friends who talk about mucking stalls and that's their Zen time that they get into the zone and they think about all this other stuff. I didn't quite ever get to that point. (laughs) To me, mucking the stalls was not the highlight of my day, but the kids absolutely had fun with it. And so when they came up, they wanted to help do that. And I was like, sure, go right ahead. You can do it. But to hear them giggle about mucking these stalls gave me a much different perspective of it. And I would find myself when they weren't here, as I was cleaning the stalls, just giggling to myself, (laughs) nobody around, thinking of the conversations that I heard the children say when they were here. And it was amusing. And it just made it made the chore a lot more fun because my grandkids had interjected this humor into something that I found disgusting, really, (laughs) but they were thrilled with it. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that until you just brought it up, brought up about how grandkids can make you see life differently. (laughs) Oh, that's a lovely example. I'm going to share that one. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Go right ahead. I am so glad that we've had this conversation and I want to make sure that I give listeners a clear picture of what the book is. And so I'm going to let you tell the title of the book and where they can find it and how they can find you on the internet. The title of the book is The Gift of Play, How Grandparents Enhance the Lives of Young Children. And that really has been uh, reflected throughout our conversation. And I hope it's been reflected in the the lives of the grandparents who are listening. My name is Judith Van Horn, so that's on the cover. One of the things that I think about in terms of this book is uh, something that, a note that Christine Crosby from Grand Magazine wrote a little blurb from the book. And she wrote, for some grandparents, quote, play does not come easy. And for others, it's their natural gift. No matter which type of grand you are, the gift of play delivers just the right amount of inspiration and education to help all grandparents understand and joyfully practice this essential part of their grandchildren's early childhood development. So I think she summed it up very well. I'm a uh, professor emerita at the University of the Pacific and a recipient of the American Psychological Association's presidential citation for outstanding psychologists. But in this book, I hope that (laughs) I'm just the grandparent next door who can really um, help people see into the many levels uh, and delight of play with grandchildren from birth. We talked about from birth, it focuses on young children, but then there's sections on play continues throughout the life of your grandchild. So 
play in the teenage years, play in the adult years. And the book is available online at Barnes and Nobles, at Amazon, and anywhere that books are sold. So that I'm also encouraging people to order the book, you know, through their independent bookstore, wherever they wherever they live. And I have friends in Canada and New Zealand and elsewhere who've bought the book uh, locally. So that's been very encouraging too. In the back of the book, you have some resources that give extra information about play that parents and grandparents can read for for even more information. More information and some more uh, links throughout the book. and places where you can get, for example, recipes for homemade Play-Doh, places where you can get wonderful um, ideas for books to buy, resources on the essential benefits of outdoor play. If you're interested in any particular area, I hope that I've given you resources to look further and um, I provide my, you know, my information so that you can reach me for a, a question or comment. Thank you. I have just one more question, and that is, if you sure. could sum up the importance of play in one or two sentences, what would you say? That's a, that's a very good question. That's the sort of elevator question of like, if you were in an elevator, what would I say? And for grandparents especially, it's wonderful for us to remember that play is the essential way that young children grow and learn. It's not time a special time of, okay, we've done our work and now we're going to play. And in fact, I disagree. Some people say, well, play is children's work. Well, I think work is work and play is play. And that is grandparents and for little kids, that's what we enjoy. And for young kids, especially play is just so central to their development, their development in terms of social, emotional growth, language growth, cognition, physical growth, and that it's not all separate, that when we're in elementary school, high school, college, whatever, we sometimes think of those subjects as separate, but in terms of development, it's all together, just like molding clay. You can't separate, you know, you're not separating little tiny pieces, but you're just weaving it all together, and that play supports all facets of children's development. And it's the most important thing that we can do with our grandchildren. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest, or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.